think of that last phrase of singing his praise forever. Sometimes, honestly, my heart struggles to want to sing. There's a lot of hard things that we go through, and singing doesn't seem like an appropriate response at some point. Because that is exuding joy. That's something that's satisfying. That's something that is, that is good for us to do. And sometimes we don't think those things are very good. But I know that in the midst of all of these things, it is God's design for us to see that even in the darkest time, that God is still able to be praised and able to be exalted, that he is still over all. And that's an affirmation that I want us to think about as we begin in prayer. Because Jesus being exalted over all and much of what we're going to see in the come and see, go and tell, is there was a darkness that he had to come into. And it is not easy, and it was not easy for him, yet he triumphed through the darkness. So let us bow in prayer and thank God for the fact that even when our hearts don't want to sing, there is much that we can sing about. So pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray right now that by the power of your Spirit that you would strengthen us as your people to do exactly what we have been singing. Lord, to recognize that you are great. That all the earth will shout your praise. Lord, our hearts want to cry and our voice wants to sing. Great are you, Lord. And Lord, even the fact that you are exalted over all, Lord, in our life, sometimes we do not see that. Lord, help us to see it. Enlighten our eyes, the eyes of our heart, to see these things. Remind us again today that you are with us, that you are Emmanuel. Lord Jesus, I pray for the heart right now that is broken. I pray that you will restore it to joy in you. As David prayed, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Lord Jesus, do this, we pray, as we see you and your word. Show us, Jesus, we need you. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As Jasper mentioned, we're starting a series the next three weeks called Come and See, Go and Tell. And it is our prayer as staff and as leadership that you guys would see clearer this Jesus that has come to us. That you would see clearer the hope that we have in him. And in light of that, think of with the holiday season coming up, many of you will be seeing friends and family And as Jasper mentioned, it's not just simply that we see, but that we also are to go and tell others about what we have seen. If it is true that we've seen it, then we will tell others about him. As I was reflecting on this passage this week, I was thinking about Christmas and the the Christmas story. If I asked you for the details of the Christmas story, I'm sure that we could get the whole thing from all of you. We could get various parts of different pieces, and you would focus on various things. But then I was... Recognizing in the Gospels, each of the Gospels, if you look at the beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them start in totally different places. I think of Mark. If you turn to Mark's Gospel, it says, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and he starts with a voice of one crying in the desert, and in verse 9 of chapter 1, he has Jesus baptized. You don't even know who Jesus is. There's no birth narrative. You have John the Baptist, then you move immediately to Jesus. You're like, where did he come from? He just assumes that you know this. 
Many of you probably know in Matthew, if you turn over to Matthew, Matthew has the genealogy of Jesus. He starts with Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and shows down through the genealogy how you could trace Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham, reminding you that it is from the promise of Abraham that Jesus has come. But he also has the angel after that appearing to Joseph, telling Mary not to divorce, or sorry, Joseph not to divorce Mary. And then... He doesn't talk about Jesus being born. He jumps right into the wise men coming to Herod and then Herod killing the babies. You're like, boy, this guy's a downer. He doesn't even talk about the good news of him being born. He goes right into the slaughter of children and Jesus escaping in Egypt. And then Luke. Luke, we probably know the best because that's the one with the shepherds and everything like that. But he starts even before that. He starts with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. He's going into the temple. An angel appears to him and now he's Mute, he can't talk. And then you've got Elizabeth becoming pregnant, the mother of John the Baptist. And he goes and sees Mary, who also has an announcement of being pregnant. And then John the Baptist leaps in, Mary, or in Elizabeth's womb upon entering Mary with Jesus. And then you've got this song of Mary. And then you've got the birth of John the Baptist and a song of Zechariah. It's like a modern-day musical happening. Luke is very extravagant. I I picture Fred Astaire dancing in the background somewhere. But it's a musical at the beginning. And then, famously, Luke chapter 2, he talks about the census being required. And then Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. And you have no room for them. And then they're in the manger, and he gives birth. And then you have the shepherds coming. No wise men, just shepherds coming and telling. And then eventually you have a genealogy that he has. And it traces him all the way back to Adam, who is the son of God. And you've got these three stories there that deal with this story of Jesus. And then you come to John, our text today. And you have to understand, John is the last disciple alive. He's probably read or seen the other gospels. And he starts his gospel way back way back. He says, it's not good enough to trace it back to Abraham. It's not good enough to start at the baptism. Mark, I don't know what you were doing. You got Matthew, okay, Abraham. You got Adam, the son of God. He goes, no, we're going back even further. He goes all the way to eternity past. And he shows that before all of creation was there, there he was. And he uses Genesis as a template to show the importance of Jesus needing to come and bring about a new creation. A new creation is needed. And so he starts back. Think of the history of the world from creation all the way to Jesus. He goes, no, let's go back again and see why this was necessary. Because the world needs a new creation. And so with this question in our mind of John and why is he coming? I want you to keep that in mind that he came for a specific purpose. And so read with me John 1, 1 through 9. He says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life 
was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. If you notice how he starts, he starts just like Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Except John adds to it something that says, In the beginning you expect God. And he says, In the beginning was the Word. Was the Word. For him to say that is kind of, in a sense, a shock appeal to them to realize, wait a minute, okay, what are you doing with this word? Although they wouldn't be opposed to that, because you understand that in the beginning was the word of God as well, correct? And the use of the term word for the Jews would have understood that the word was stuff like the creative power of God. What did God do in the first thing of creation? After it describes that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void, and the waters were there, and darkness covered it all. And then God spoke. His word was evident right from the beginning. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so John is playing on that mindset of the creative power of God in speaking things into being. But also it's the understanding of divine action. When God says something, things happen, correct? That's what we see in Isaiah 55. Many of us know this passage. It says that my word shall not return to me empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose. It will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I think of that idea of sending it. There's already hints right now of more than just spoken words. You don't send your word. You could send a piece of mail to someone that has your word on it. But it's this idea of sending his word to do something. And then think of the word being the revelation of God and the revelation of his purpose. How many times in the Bible it says the word of the Lord came to so-and-so? The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And then it says, and it was fulfilled according to the word of the Lord. Because God tells you and reveals himself. It is a revelation of God. Keep those things in mind. The creative ability, the divine action of God and his revelation. These are all caught up in that term, the word. And I want to remind us that God reveals himself to us. God is a God who delights to reveal himself, to be known by us. As I'm reading this, and I challenge us with this, do you delight in knowing God as he's revealed himself? Do we spend time knowing him, wanting to know him? In Genesis 1, he focuses on his word being active and acting. In John 1, he focuses on his word being. It is something. And we'll see it is someone. And that's very important. The word of God accomplishes his purpose, but then he shows us that the word of God also stands in relationship with God. And he's been there from the beginning. And so the word of God is seen here already in the statement, in the beginning was the word, as greater than all things. He's greater than time. He's as changeless as eternity, simply by saying, in the beginning, was the word. But then he answers a question that you and I would wonder. If you don't start with, in the beginning, God, and you start, in the beginning, was the word, what is the relationship between these two? 
And that's what he answers in the next two parts there. He says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the key focus, again, is the relationship of the word to God. The word was with God. The idea there is towards one another. So standing, in a sense, face to face. Not just side by side with one another, but having a relationship of looking at one another. I think a picture of that is when God speaks to Moses. He says to him, I speak to him as one face to face. That's the idea of the word with God. They are looking at each other. It's invoking this relational oneness. Oneness. There's a unity. There's also a distinction. You can't be with yourself in a sense. And so he's going, I'm playing out how this works, and he'll explain it in a bit, but you cannot confuse that everything that God is simply the word was to. He's not looking in a mirror per se. He's looking at a distinct person there. He's with God. And there's oneness of purpose here. There's a loving relationship. It is literally the closest connection with God that is possible. It is there. And then he makes the highest affirmation that anyone could make about this word. And he says, and the word was God. He was God. So let me clarify what he's saying here. All that can be said about God can rightly also be said about the word. What can be said about God is also true of the word. It does not say that the word is simply its own thing by itself, but there's a unity again, was with God. And it's not saying God was the word, so that God alone is simply the word. That would be wrong. It's saying that the word was God and is with God here. And I think of our culture. I was struggling to explain this, and I think about how our culture even wrestles with our understanding of Jesus. Too often, we have this distinction of how God revealed himself in the Old Testament is kind of different than the Jesus of the New Testament. I've heard our culture say things like, Jesus does not condemn homosexuality. Yeah, God might have, but did you ever notice that Jesus doesn't say anything about it? Can I tell you that's a false distinction? You cannot say that God says something about it that's different than what Jesus would say about it. If God said it, Jesus said it. They're they're, they're there. They're both in agreement. There's not a, a conflict. God is not some angry father up in heaven and Jesus, that sympathetic brother, who's like, it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that. I'll deal with that. That's not the issue. It's, it's whatever my father does, that is what I do, is what he says. Whatever he does, I do. There's no difference in purpose between the two. There's total unity. And yet I think of our struggle with that. We prefer to read about the Jesus of the New Testament as opposed to the God of the Old Testament, as if they're somehow different. Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. What you read about in the Old Testament is exactly what Jesus would do. And I would argue many times it's Jesus doing these things. It is. Before he is incarnate. And so the deeds and words of Jesus are in fact the deeds and words of God. And John doesn't let you see it any other way. You can't dismiss this. You have to see it this way. In fact, to not see it or to miss one of these points is actually to fall into heresy. 
is to fall outside of what the Bible teaches. I could give examples of various religions who retranslate some or misunderstand this very passage. And it's wrong. It's heresy. It is not within Orthodox Christianity or what is true. You have to understand that. Because this is the epitome of John's point. Jesus is God. The Word is God. And he was in the beginning with God, which is what he says in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. And in the translation there that he was, it actually says this one. He's emphasizing again, it's him. I see there a joyful delight in the person as he reflects on Jesus. He goes, it was that, it was that one. This one right here. He was in the beginning with God. Isn't that amazing, he says. And as he talks about his relationship with God, he then talks about his relationship with creation. What is the word's relationship to creation? And that's what he says in verse 3 and 4. He says, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. I think of that in terms of the word's relationship to creation. Everything owes its existence to the word. Everything. Nothing came into being apart from the word. And then he says everything out of that is dependent on the word. It's not just that he made it all, but the Bible would declare other places that it also is sustained by his word. Jesus sustains it all. He keeps it going. So therefore everything owes its dependence on the word. And therefore, if that's true, then everything is under the authority of the word. Everything. There's nothing to which Jesus does not have rightful Claim, And he says that in the statement, not even one thing was made without him. Everything. There's nothing that was made that was not made by Jesus. And let me remind us as we go around and drive around and we take for granted the things, and I would say some of the beauty of the fall that we've just seen, and some of you, maybe you hate the snow, but it is still beautiful to see it on the ground before it's the slush of West Michigan on the side of the road. It's just the reality is that there's evidences of the word in all of creation. It evidences the fact that Jesus is there every single time. I think the words of Colossians 1, it talks about him being the firstborn of all creation. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and even the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all the heavenly beings, they're all made by Jesus It says all things were created through him and even for him. It's his. Then it says he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And Hebrews talks about Jesus being the heir of all things. He's the one who who gets it all because through him he made the universe. And again, creation is a revelation of God. So Jesus has been hinting about his presence there simply by creation. And everyday reminders, we drive past and we go outside and Lord willing, you'll be able to see things and you will have everyday reminders of the reality of dependence on God. I think about in the morning when you open your drapes or your curtains and you look outside and hopefully it's a sunny day. But if not, God is still there. But you look out and you look at the things that you see. Maybe you look out and you see your neighbor's house. Just imagine that there's beautiful things instead of your neighbor's house. And you're looking at it and you're saying, God, you are the one who made 
this. As this is fully dependent on you, so am I. So am I. And I think of the reality that we know that things are not simply okay, though. We know that it's not just that God made it all, but there's something wrong with creation, right? And so this this passage also reminds us that the Word is able to reclaim things and to remake things because it's His. And there's a need for that. I think of the story, I I won't call it a Christmas story, but there's a story about Sneezy the Snowman. I don't know if you guys know Sneezy the Snowman, but he does very foolish things. He's a snowman, and he really likes hot things, like a hot tub. And he likes to drink hot cocoa. And he ends up being melted as a puddle on the ground. And every single time, they say, what are we supposed to do? The kids ask him, and he says, make me brand new. I think of that. There's an understanding in you and I, hopefully our hearts understand that we want to be made new. There's something in creation, too, that groans. Inwardly, we groan, too. We want to be made new. And this passage is reminding you that there is one who owns it all, and he actually has the authority and the ability to make it new. He created, but he can also recreate. He can make things new. And then he says this. He says, because in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, as you're reading it, you say, in him was life. You think first and foremost of what he just talked about being physical life. He he gave physical life. But then he says that life is the light of men. And so it's more than just physical light. Because now he's pairing something of life being light. And what he's saying is, is that the eternal life that was there from the beginning. I want you to think, John is talking about the original creation. What was there in the beginning? He granted life to all of those things. But he granted life eternal in his presence. That was one of the joys. In him is this life. It is eternal life. And then he links it to that life is the light of men. Light is always talking about revelation of something. Seeing something. And he says that's exactly what it is. Eternal life is knowing God. Jesus says that. Jesus says, God, this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And that's how it was in the beginning, where man lived in life with God, knowing him, enjoying him, and glorying in him. That life from the beginning was the light of men. And that was the original intention with mankind. But you and I both know that that's not how it is right now. That original intention was lost. But only Jesus, again, John has to start at the beginning because only Jesus is the one who can restore these things. Think of it. Jesus lives in perfect fellowship with God. That's what we need. Jesus has the authority over creation. We need his authority to do this, his power to do this. Eternal life is in Jesus and the light that he reveals to us of himself. We need that. And so only he is the one who can bring these things. But again, we know that something happened in John in verse 5. He shows us this. He says the light has shined. Or sorry, the light not has, but the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Notice that everything prior to this verse were all past tense. 
It was all was. It was the Word. It was with God. Was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And it was not anything made that was made. It was life. It was the light of men. And then he says the light shines. Now. The light shines present in the darkness. And then he says, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this is a key verse in the ministry of Jesus because this introduces the major contrast in the book of John between light and darkness. The conflict between that which is good and that which is evil. That reveals the submission of man to God and that which rebels against God. This is the cosmic problem of the creation. And I would argue that John, in this one verse, he covers all of Old Testament history in that one statement. All of it. Because if you think of it, he says, listen, everything was good at the beginning, but then the light shines in the darkness. He goes all the way forward and skips all of Old Testament history to come to Jesus over here. And for the sake of argument, let's just discuss a little bit about the darkness that was in the Old Testament. We have Genesis 1 and 2, the perfect things, that everything was good. And then all of a sudden you have the rebellion of mankind. They say, I don't want you to reign. I do not want you to be my God. I want to decide what it is. And through that act, then you have the fallenness of man, the separation of relationship with God, removed from his presence, given death and the darkening of our hearts, contrasting life and light. Death and darkness have taken its place. And that's the epitome of mankind. That's the epitome of what happened. The fall, though, ends with hope. Think of that. God is always shining light in the darkness. Even in Genesis 3, when mankind falls, he says, listen, there will be from the seed of a woman someone who will come and will crush the head of the serpent. He's going to come and I will send him. And you see the darkness next of the flood. You're like, well, that's not working very well. Darkness keeps coming. God yet brings salvation through it and promises again. And then you have Abraham and a promise of clarity just a little bit more. It'll be from from Abraham. And you move on and you see darkness keeps spreading. These stories aren't always light and joyful. It's not always filled with hope and happiness. It's often very dark, filled with death. You go, God, what are you doing? It doesn't even seem like light is working. You're telling me that light is shining in the darkness? What is happening You've got over and over these stories, and yet God is always bringing salvation in the midst of his judgment. Think of Lot being spared from Sodom and Gomorrah. I mentioned Noah being spared from the flood. You've got the Israelites escaping out of Egypt. You have Rahab in the midst of Jericho. You have these hints of salvation, light shining in the midst of darkness. Yet we know in the story of the judges and the kings, it didn't seem like there was many lights at all. It was not pretty. And there's a promise of a breaking of the kingdom and then eventually the destruction of that kingdom where the north is taken away. Warned to the south, don't do like that. Don't be like that. Do not deny God. Did not listen. They're eventually exiled as well. And I think of that. There are very few lights seemingly happening. But think in the midst of that, God never stopped shining light. He always promised stuff in the Old Testament. He's always telling people that there is hope in the midst of it. Yes, there's going to be judgment, but I'm eventually going to bring you salvation. And I love how God in his grace promises them that there will be a new covenant. There's going to be a new covenant, new one. 
a remade, recreated covenant. I will give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new, I'm going to take out the old one and give you a new one that's created new. And I'm going to give you a new spirit in you. And I'm going to make a new heavens and a new earth. All things, he says, will be made new. Those are the promises of God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to restore and transform and recreate all that was lost. And all of them are caught up in one person, you start seeing. You see that it's, again, the seed of the woman. It's a son of Abraham. Moses says there will be a prophet like me who God will send. David is promised that there will be a king like him who will come. And then Isaiah looks at this guy who's going to suffer, though. A suffering servant is going to come. Yet through all of these little hints of light, he's promising that light is going to shine. It's going to be like the noonday. There's a massive anticipation of light coming, and it's going to shine in the darkness. And I think of John as he's even reflecting on his own reality then, that he says the light shines even now. A man living past looking back to the reality of what happened and the glories that followed, and it wasn't easy. His brother, James, was put to death by a sword for the name of Jesus. He himself will be exiled and killed. And he's sitting there going, even in that, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness cannot overcome the light. And he says, those events that I'm reflecting on and that he wants us to see, he says, those events brought about the beginning of what all creation needs. It's the need for the light to shine in the darkness. And that is the testimony of the Gospels. And that's the joy of the New Testament, that even when it seems like death and darkness overcame the light on those days, John is looking back, he says, it looked like it was dark. He's the only one who looked in the face of Jesus as he died. He's the one who saw it out of all the disciples. He says, even in that moment, I remember that distinctly, but he says, light shines even in that darkness. Because the light always raises victoriously. Darkness cannot win. I think of this. Some of you get up and it is dark. And especially in the winter, it gets dark very quickly. Some of you are up when it's still dark outside. And you're going about your day, but you always have the anticipation that the sun is going to rise, right? And I always think of that joy of starting to see just the first hint of the sun in the sky. You know what I'm talking about? You see it. And the anticipation is it is just going to get brighter. Just going to get brighter. None of us, let me say, none of us expect the sun to go back down. None of us. When we see the dawn approaching, we expect it to just come and we're like, yes, it's going to be day. It's going to be day. That is what John is saying. He says, look at the light is shining in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. It has not overcome it. It is only going to start and going to ascend eventually to take over the darkness in full. And he says in 1 John, he says, behold, the true light is already shining and the darkness is passing away. Folks, that's our hope. And that's the anticipation of what John looks forward to. And now he shows us and he says, listen, God's people, the light is shining in the darkness. Don't miss it. But let me say this. I know 
that some of you are facing darkness. Some of you are facing very hard things. And you are not anticipating joy this holiday season. Some of you have suffered loss recently. Maybe this year. These are not joyful times. You're anticipating a mourning time. A time where you're going to weep. Maybe there's fractures in your family and you're not looking forward to facing those things. Many times the holidays reveal those things. But let me remind you that as John points our focus is the light is always shining. The darkness of those experiences cannot put out the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that you and I have. I think of right outside that door, we have a verse, James 1.17, a great reminder to us. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You and I sometimes will live in the shadows. Sometimes we experience those shadows, and those things are because of our circumstances change. They change. One day it could be great, the next day not. God always gives good gifts from above. He never changes. He can do nothing but that. Because he doesn't change. He's always one to hope in. He's always the father of lights. As John is reflecting on this, he makes a necessary shift here. Because again, there's opportunity for salvation before God brings judgment. As I said before, with like Noah and Rahab and even Lot, there's, there's an opportunity that God gives for people to receive him. And so John sees, as the dawn of the new creation is about to break, he sends a witness into the world to prepare the way for him. And he introduces us to a man named John. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so in this In these three verses, he shows us that John the Baptist, I love how he doesn't call him John the Baptist, his name is John, uh, the guy who writes this, he never refers to himself as John. He simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, that's a nice title. I I like that one too. Jesus loved me. Mm -hmm. But this guy's name is John. He's John the Baptist. And he summarizes his ministry right here. John came for witness. That's it. I want you to think of a witness. A witness is someone who testifies to something that is true. At least that's what they're called to do, right? So a witness establishes the truth. I think of my kids. You ever walk in on something that happened, or maybe you were a part of something that happened, and they look at you, or I look at my kids, and I go, what happened? Because clearly from the evidence, I have no clue. It could go any direction from here. I have no idea what happened. What happened? One of them starts talking. I don't know which one to choose to start asking. I, I've realized all of them just, whatever. I'll ask the littlest one. What happened? Okay, I don't understand. What happened? I ask all, what happened? What, what happened? They're all telling a story, right? I'm hoping to find the truth. Because there's multiple witnesses. All of you are there. I what happened? You did what with the plunger? I don't understand what you're talking about. I, I don't know. 
Sometimes you don't get to it. Sometimes you do. But think of that, is you're trying to establish the truth. The more witnesses you have, the idea is there's more reliability to the truth. More reliability. John puts forward John the Baptist simply as one of many witnesses to Jesus being the light. He simply came to bear witness. But think of this also. A witness doesn't just establish the truth. A witness is asked to commit to the truth. Commit. Because to be silent means that you cannot testify to it. There's not a commitment to it. Once you open your mouth and speak, you've committed to telling the truth. Right? In a court of law, if you commit to telling the truth, you take an oath to be the witness. If you do not tell the truth and you purposefully lie, it is perjury. That's a problem. I think of how many times I've asked my kids, and I said, what happened? And one of them starts talking, right? And the other one looks at them and goes, that's not true. Oh, intrigue. What is true now? But then you have this dissension between them as what is the truth. So-and-so hit me. I did not hit you. You hit me first. Well, you both hit each other. That's the truth. But you've got this standing up. Again, the commitment to the truth. There's a desire in them for the truth to be known. Let me ask you, is that true of you? Is that true of you that you have a heart that desires for the truth to be known? That you've made a commitment to testify to that which is true? How often do you hear those things that are false around you? You hear people talking and thinking about things and explaining things in a way that is false. And you know that that's false. I think of John. John came simply for the purpose of witnessing to the light. That's his task. And I think of the focus of John as it says only of John the Baptist in this gospel that John says he must increase. I must decrease. His focus was the exaltation of Jesus even above himself. And we'll see that he gave his life for the testimony to the light. And that's amazing. But why is this light so important? Why is this light so important? And the next part that he says of him is that so that all might believe through him. That is his focus. And again, I think of that in terms of seeing the light. If you saw something that was beautiful, I think of how many times you see the sun or you see something beautiful and you say, hey, 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 come here, come here, you got to see this. That's the focus of John. I want you to believe in him, so I'm going to draw your attention to him. Imagine if you saw something beautiful, let's say you saw a sunrise and you call people and there's a bunch of you there and you just sit there and talk about all of your needs right in front of them. Hey, did you know I was, really, I was really struggling this past week? Hey, by the way, you could thank me for showing you this. This is pretty awesome, isn't it? Yeah, take me out for lunch afterwards. But by the way, uh, did I ever tell you about uh, some of these things? Man, I just, I'm really struggling right now. Could you just help me? Yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah I know, that's awesome. But hey, hey, focus, right here, right here. Hey, man, what's up? Yeah. Could you imagine? The focus is the light. All of your needs are met in the light. We're not talking about simply a sunrise. We're talking about the Lord of heaven and earth. We're talking about the greatest, most powerful, most glorious being that you could ever even imagine is known by those who he has made his children. And you and I are stuck on focusing on peripheral things. I think of 
simply focusing on the light so that people would see and rejoice. And let me say, when I have an opportunity to show, let's say, my kids or my family something, there is joy in them enjoying it as well. If I have found joy in that, I want them to enjoy it also. And many times you could sit back and just watch them, and there's almost something so perfect about them enjoying something beautiful. You decrease. That increases. That is the focus of what we want to do. I often wonder, Charles, do you have that focus with family? Do I have that focus of joy? John had that focus. In 3 John, he says this. He says, it gave me great joy when some believers came and they testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. And then he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Think of that. No greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He's delighted that they see the truth and that they're walking towards him constantly. That's his joy. That's awesome. Let me ask you, do you see the places that you go as opportunities to testify about Jesus? How about in your home? How about at your job? How about at your school? Or at the sporting events that you're at? How about in your neighborhood? What about this holiday? Who are you going to be around and who are you around? Do you testify about the light? Are they hearing a testimony about the light? And I want you to picture faces of people. I want you to picture their faces. Because in the last statement, John reminds us that there's something clear about this light that's coming into the world. It is not a neutral light. It is not neutral. He says this in verse 9, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Notice he says it's the true light. In other words, this is the focus of all other lights. I want you to picture candles in regards to a floodlight or a bonfire. The candles lead you to something greater. Think of a firefly in the middle of the day. It's not needed. When the true light comes, the firefly isn't needed. You've got the sun during the day. Every light points to that which is greater, the true light, the ultimate light. All of those hints, those shadows of the true light in the Old Testament are pointing you to what is going to come. He says that true light is going to enlighten everyone. Think of a candle is seen by few. Few. A firefly is experienced by few people. The sun is experienced by all. And that's his point. This is going to divide everyone. This message is going to go out to everyone. And people are either going to be on that which is light, or they're going to be on that which is darkness. There's going to be a dividing that happens. This true light will enlighten everyone. Not to say that everyone's going to be saved, but it's going to expose everybody. Everybody has to decide about this person, this, this word who's coming. The true light is coming. And so you can't be neutral about it. You can't be, well, I'll decide on that one later. It's no, decide today. Do you know this one? Do you know the true light? Do you understand how important it is? And again, it gives light to everyone. John is telling us that what is going to happen is a power from outside of us has to come within this darkness to shine. 
It is necessary for it to come here to confront the darkness in all of us. He has to experience this darkness, to take on this darkness. And as this light shines, I would say this shines even now, even now today. All of us, all the world is confronted and exposed by the light. Again, you cannot stop the dawn from rising. Darkness has a limited time. You can run as much as you want, but the the light is only becoming brighter and eventually will take over until there is no darkness at all. And so the question that I leave you with is, will you come to this light and be saved? Have you come to this light? Do you hate this light? Do you try to put it out? Have people been telling you about this? You try to put it out. Do you see in this light the way to be made new, to actually have eternal life, to become part of this new creation? Because to live truly the way that it was meant to be from the beginning when God was there with the word, to see and know God rightly as was in the beginning, you must see the true light. You must see it. And in order for any of this to be possible, he says right at the end of verse 9, he says it has to come into the world. It was coming into the world. And so in the silence of that fateful night, there was a cry of a little baby who would be placed in a manger. And in the face of that baby, there was seen for the first time the dawn of the new creation has come. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love what you have accomplished in your son. Lord, I love rehearsing the truth of your word to our hearts. Lord, it is true that the darkness rages against you, but Lord, the light is always victorious. Lord, I pray that you would enliven our hearts to realize that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you indeed are gloriously God. And it will all be to the praise of the Father. Lord, we want to see all things united to yourself. Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray that they would be born again, be made new. Lord, for those of us who know you, who are your children, I pray that we would rejoice in you in having the first glimpses of that new creation because you've brought it. Oh Lord, we love you. Amen.